Emergency Traffic Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Emergency Traffic Podcast, where we talk about firefighter and paramedic line of duty deaths to learn from these tragic events and potentially prevent them from happening in the future. I'm Doug and today I'm joined by uh, my co-host Paul. Uh, Dirk might be showing up. He's at work, so I'm not sure. So for now, it's just Paul. How's it going, Paul? I am I'm well. I'm uh, doing good here. Been a busy uh, couple of weeks. I've been doing lots of uh, incident command system training online, and uh, I went down to Calgary and back today, and just got back in. And I've got a new laptop, so I'm uh, trying to get that all figured out and keep it keep it working for uh, for more training next week. So besides that, I'm in doing good, but just uh, just really busy and trying to work on new podcasts and all that kind of good stuff. So yeah, it's good. Awesome. Uh, today we're going to talk about a, a double line of duty death from February 15th, 2013 in Bryan, Texas. And we have a special guest joining us today, Chief Randy McGregor, who was the chief of the Bryan Fire Department when this incident happened. Uh, he joined the Bryan Fire Department in August of 1983 as a firefighter EMT. Uh, 1988, he completed his paramedic training and became one of the first group of paramedics for the city of Bryan as an advanced life support service was first delivered. Over the years, he moved up through the ranks, serving as apparatus operator, fire lieutenant, battalion chief, assistant chief of operations. Chief McGraver began serving as interim fire chief in January of 2012 and was confirmed as the fire chief on August 14, 2012. On January 31, 2021, Chief McGregor retired after 37 years of service with the Bryan Fire Department. In February 2012, 22. He said he was looking for something to do, so he began employment with the Texas A&M Engineering Extension Service, uh, which is also known as TEKS, as an Associate Division Director with the Emergency Services Training Institute. Uh, he has a Bachelor of Arts in Fire Administration, a Master of Science in Executive Fire Service Leadership. In 2006, he completed the Executive Fire Officer Program through the National Fire Academy, in July of 2012, he attained the professional designation of Chief Fire Officer through the Center of Public Safety Excellence. Professional certifications include license, licensed paramedic, master firefighter, master fire inspector, master fire investigator, fire instructor, and hazard, hazardous material, materials technician. You got a lot behind your name there, Chief. <laughs> well, that was, a, that was a number of years there to do some things, so... Yeah. I try to take advantage. Well, welcome to the show. We're really happy to have you here. You're our second guest uh, guest on the show. So we had one for the the Sofa Superstore fire in Charleston, which is really good. And now we can go over this. It's always nice to have somebody with more intimate knowledge of the incident. Well, I appreciate the opportunity to speak. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Okay, so a quick, we'll talk. The Brian is a city in. Uh, Brazos County, Texas. It's located in the heart of the Brazos Valley. 
Uh, in 2020, it had a population of just under 84,000. Uh, it shares a border with the city of College Station. Uh, and the, Met, the Bryan College Station metro area has a population of about 250,000. And College Station is also the home of Texas A&M University, which is where the the Texas Firefield, Brayton Firefield, that Paul and I have both been to a few times. And Chief McGregor works every day. Probably the best fire school in the world, I'd say. Biggest for sure, because everything's bigger in Texas. <laughs> That's right. That's right. All right. Let's on to the incident in question. Uh, February 15th. 2013, two career lieutenants were killed and two career firefighters were injured at an assembly hall fire following a flashover. The structure was built in 1945 and contained approximately 7,400 square feet of interior space at the time of the incident. The structure was classified as a commercial occupancy when constructed and local building code did not require fire sprinklers at that time. The last known interior renovation was believed to have been in 1960. But available records showed that the permits were issued in 2011 to replace mechanical equipment within the structure and to replace vinyl siding with fiber cement lap siding. The structure included gas and electrical utilities. The interior walls were covered with laminated wood paneling and the interior floor was vinyl on a concrete pad. A gabled roof covered the dance hall and a flat roof supported by wooden dimensional lumber covered the bingo hall. The kitchen entrance on the B side was covered by an awning. The fire department involved in this incident last inspected the structure in 2005 without noting any problems. Pre-planning of the structure had not been conducted. At the time of the incident, the fire department was operating out of five fire stations with 110 uniform members serving approximately 78,000 people within an area of about 43 square miles. On a daily basis, the fire department would staff five engine companies with the minimum staffing of three, a truck company minimum staffing of three, four advanced life support ambulances, which were cross-trained as firefighters, a battalion chief and EMS supervisor. The fire department also staffed the technical rescue team trained in confined space, trench collapse, high angle rescue, water rescue, building collapse, and wilderness, wilderness search and rescue. The fire department was rated as a Class 2 by the uh, Insurance Services Organization, or ISO. In, in the ISO rating system, Class 1 represents exemplary fire protection, and Class 10 indicates that the, fire, that the area's fire suppression program does not meet ISO's minimum criteria. Training and experience of the involved people, victim number one had been with the department for approximately 12 years, holding the current rank of lieutenant. He had completed all the certifications required of the state of Texas and the fire department. Additionally, between 2011 and 2012, he had completed continued education training on topics such as aerial operations, hose handling and fire streams, truck company operations, and special operation rescues. Victim number two had been with this department for approximately 32 years, holding the current rank of lieutenant. He had completed all the certifications required of the state of Texas and the fire department. He had also completed training on topics such as lost firefighters, command response, down firefighter exercises, SCBA and PPE, hose and fire streams, and ladders. The injured firefighter one had been with the department for approximately five years, 
holding the rank of firefighter. He completed all the certifications required of the state of Texas and the fire department. Additionally, between 2011 and 12, he had completed continuing education on topics such as down firefighter exercise as CBA and PPE, structural collapse equipment review, master streams, blitz fires, blitz fires, and suspended victim rescue techniques. Injured firefighter two had been with the fire department for approximately 11 months, holding the current rank of probationary firefighter. He had completed all the certifications of the state of Texas and the fire department. Uh, he also completed continuing education training on topics such as RIT, SCBA, PPE, RIT bag familiarization, RIT practical, and hose handling and fire streams. So, Chief, maybe you can talk on uh, the qualifications that all the members of the Bryan, Texas Fire Department have when they get on. Well, again, it's kind of changed over the years. You know, when I started, you didn't have to have any. We put them through in-house recruit schools, what I went through. But, um, um, you know, over the years, we got to where we hired. And during this period, we were hiring certified firefighter EMTs <clears throat> and then putting them through later after probation through paramedic school. Um, I know down here in Texas right now, there's a firefighter shortage. Uh, it's tough to find folks. And they've gone back to hiring uncertified but uh, all the qualifications of these, both of these, all four of these gentlemen had were, were all in compliance with the commission. And of course, um, we took training very serious, a uh, lot of in-house training, uh, training out at A&M, et cetera. So um, we made sure with, with all of our folks, as, as most departments do, that, that not just the minimum standards were met, but even a lot of advanced training as well. Well, I, mean, I think like we talked about the, the fire school there at AM, you guys are pretty lucky to have that right in your backyard to we were very over there kind of whenever you want. I don't I don't know how it works, but it's a pretty uh, awesome facility to have right there. It is. So the equipment and personnel, the initial dispatched assignment from the victims department included the following units. Uh, engine one had a lieutenant, which was victim one, an operator and a probationary firefighter. Engine two with a lieutenant, an operator, and a firefighter. Engine five with a lieutenant, which was victim number two. Firefighter one, which was the acting operator, and firefighter two, which were the, the two victims uh, that were hurt in the fire, was a probationary firefighter. Truck one responded with an operator, an acting lieutenant, who was normally an operator, and a firefighter. Uh, truck 1 is an aerial platform apparatus that was out of service, so members responded in a rescue truck for the shift that was designated as Truck 1. Uh, medic 2 or Med 2 with two fire medics. An EMS supervisor who's a lieutenant in rank responded uh, and was designated as the incident safety officer as per department policy. Battalion 1, which was a battalion chief, responded in his own vehicle, assumed command of the incident, requested an admin page on a ladder truck from a neighboring department and an additional engine to assist with the incident. The requested apparatus came from the neighboring automatic aid app department as the, and arrived as the victims and injured firefighters were being removed from the structure. I mean, the call station there is really close to Brian for people that don't know it. Uh, it you drive from one to the other and don't even know you, you, you uh, change cities. Well, yeah, lots of times when we're there and we're at the school, we're staying at College Station, we're going for supper, and Brian and we're driving along, and the guy goes, he's like, "Oh, we're in Brian now." And I'm, okay, 
I don't know what street became became Brian, but it's almost one city. I mean, you, you wouldn't know the difference. It's true. So February 15th, 2013, a passing motorist uh, passing by the assembly hall approximately 23, 19 hours Noticed fire coming coming from the roof and immediate, immediately placed a cellular 911 call. Fire and police units were dispatched for a structure fire. Police units arrived on scene at the same time as the fire department. Police said they observed a three to four foot flame with smoke coming from the Alpha Bravo corner, corner roof and thick black smoke emitting from an attic vent on the Delta side. Arriving fire department units could not confirm thick black smoke emitting from the attic vent on the Delta side. Additionally, upon their arrival, police observed that no vehicles were in the parking lot and the building appeared secured and empty of people. I mean, that's pretty good indication that nobody's in there if there's no cars and it's all locked up. I guess you never know, though. The first fire department apparatus to arrive on scene was Engine 1. Over the radio from Engine 1, Victim 1. Whose lieutenant advised incoming units that the fire was showing through the roof and they were in offensive fire mode. Victim 1 then passed command to the next arriving officer. Victim 1 directed his probationary firefighter to place a positive pressure PPV fan at the Alpha side front door and pull an inch and three quarter hose line, which was 200 feet of red hose, off the rear of engine 1. While these tasks were being performed, victim number one conducted a 360 walk around of the structure. Truck one, EMS one, and battalion one arrived shortly after engine one. Battalion one took over as the IC and advised dispatch and responding units that they were in offensive mode for a single story commercial structure with fire showing from the Bravo Charlie corner roof. Following departmental procedures, the IC directed EMS one to become the incident safety officer and to position himself at the Charlie side after he finished his walk around of the structure. The ISO also shut off the main electrical breaker, which was located on the Delta side. He noticed fire coming from the Alpha Bravo corner roof and smoke pushing from the eaves on the Charlie side. Upon exiting their apparatus, Truck 1 personnel heard and saw Engine 1 personnel breaking the glass on the Alpha side door. Truck 1 personnel began gathering their tools and the acting lieutenant and the firefighters started a 360-degree walk-around, walking counterclockwise around the structure. After donning his turnout gear in SCBA, the Truck 1 operator walked around the structure to meet the rest of the Truck 1 crew. Engine 2 arrived on scene and took the hydrant and fed Engine 1 with a 5-inch supply line. Additionally, Engine 5 arrived on scene and was designated as the RIT by the incident commander. Victim number two and firefighter two did a walk around the structure while firefighter one donned his protective gear. Victim one and his probationary firefighter then advanced the inch and three quarter red hose line through the alpha side door into the vestibule with his probationary firefighter on the nozzle. Again, those are the guys from engine one. Prior to their entry, the PPV fan had been turned on high and placed just outside the alpha side door blowing into the vestibule. The Engine 1 probationary firefighter stated to the investigator that smoke was initially a few feet off the ground with approximately 10 feet of visibility. Once inside the vestibule, the Engine 1 crew went left into the bingo hall, which was filled with what appeared to be tables and chairs. Smoke was moderate and just off the floor, but the probationary firefighter said he was able to see a yellow glow in the distance on the B side, Bravo side wall. 
Roughly in the middle of this room, victim number one told his probationary firefighter to open the hose line and hit the fire that was rolling over them. Penciling with a straight stream pattern initially knocked down the yellow glow. The IC advised victim one over the radio that whatever he was doing was having a good effect on the fire conditions observed from the outside. While the engine one crew operated in the bingo room, two members from truck one began breaching exterior doors. Truck one first breached an office door in the Delta side, which contained no smoke or fire. They then closed the door and repeated this procedure for a single door on the Charlie side. Light smoke was visible, but no fire was observed. Truck one then bypassed the double door on the Bravo side close to the BC corner and breached the door on the Bravo side close to where the fire was believed to have originated, which was a doorway to the kitchen area. When the truck one crew breached the door and pushed it in, the fire was observed coming around this door and the entire room, the kitchen, was engulfed with a heavy fire. At this point, all three members of the truck one crew were together and they had gone on air while breaching the door due to the amount of fire and smoke in the immediate area. The truck, truck one crew blocked the door for open for ventilation and fire began rolling out the door. Passing the truck one crew, personnel from engine two were completing their walk around at this time and were heading back to the alpha side where they observed that engine one operator had pulled a second inch and three quarter hose line off of the rear of engine one, which was 200 feet of yellow hose. The IC tasked the engine two crew with backing up engine one. So they grabbed the yellow hose line and walked, in, walked with it into the vestibule. They then turned left into the bingo hall where they had to crawl due to conditions. They followed the red hose line until they came upon victim one. A brief face-to-face -face discussion occurred about finding the seat of the fire. The engine two crews then backed out of the bingo hall and went back into the vestibule where they then decided to proceed into the dance hall area. They entered the dance hall, advancing approximately 25 feet. Engine two's crew observed the fire over their heads, so they immediately flowed water into the ceiling above them, knocking down the acoustic tiles. After so are, they, are they separate at this time? What's that, yes. Paul? Are they separate at this time? So the engine one crew are still in the bingo hall area. The engine two had met them and then backed out and went into the dance hall. Is that correct, Chief? Yeah, that's correct. Okay. After completing their walk around and opening doors at all four sides, the truck one crew returned to the alpha side. The truck one crew was an acting lieutenant, an operator, and a firefighter then entered through the alpha side door carrying their hand tools. Standing up, they began a left-handed search into the bingo hall. Upon entering this room, the smoke was dark and thick, but not a lot of heat. After a few minutes, they had to exit the structure because the truck one operator had a seal issue with his face piece. While the truck one operator attended to his face piece issue on the exterior, the truck one acting lieutenant and his firefighter re-entered re the structure through the alpha side door and crawled in following the red hose line further into the bingo hall to locate the engine one crew. Truck one came upon victim one who requested they feed him additional hose line. The engine one probationary firefighter stated that he and victim one then crawled deeper with the hose line, eventually making it over to a large amount of fire from floor to ceiling that was rolling over them at times on the Bravo side. The engine one probationary firefighter stated that they sat there flowing water for a few minutes and 
conditions, then really got really dark and really hot. The Tower One crew, the two members, exited the structure to change bottles. While the Engine One probationary firefighter was flowing water, victim one asked him to check his remote pressure gauge. The note, the lieutenant who worked the night before advised investigators that the heads-up display on the same SCBA used by victim one wasn't working during a structure fire that extended, extended through shift change. This lieutenant advised investigators that he immediately advised victim one of the SCBA issue when he changed shift this in the morning. Victim one obviously left it on the truck. His tank was at a quarter full and the engine one probationary firefighter heads up display was reading amber. Victim one then advised his probationary firefighter that they needed to leave. The engine one probationary firefighter dropped the nozzle where they had been spraying down the fire and began to follow their hose line, the red hose line, out first. Victim one followed behind him but soon became separated from the probationary firefighter. The engine one probationary firefighter reported hearing victim one over the radio say he was lost and hearing IC tell victim one to follow out the red hose line. Prior to victim one's radio transmission at the request of the IC, a second PPV fan was placed near the first PPV fan at the Alpha side door by the RIT crew. The engine one probationary firefighter then stopped, called out to victim one, but heard no response or pass alarm. The engine one probationary firefighter continued to crawl out because his vibrator alert was sounding. The engine one probationary firefighter stated he briefly got turned around on the hose line because there was a loop in it. He was able to use his stream light to find the hose direction leading out. Eventually, he came upon all three members of the truck one crew in the bingo room just before the vestibule who directed him to the exit. The engine one probationary firefighter advised that the truck one crew that victim one was following him out on the hose line and they had gotten separated. The truck one firefighter advised the truck one officer he could hear a pass alarm sounding in the room that the engine one probationary firefighter had just exited from. The truck one crew then followed the red hose line in following the sound of the pass device. They stated that it seemed like the sound of the pass alarm was moving away from them as they advanced. The truck one crew advanced as far as the truck one crew advanced as far as the loop in the hose line that the engine one probationary firefighter had described when he was exiting the structure. The truck one firefighter was low on air, so the truck one crew had to turn around and exit. The truck one crew met with the engine two crew, who were also exiting due to low air in the vestibule. They hadn't heard a pass alarm. During this time, an evacuation tone was requested by IC as the Truck 1 crew was exiting the bingo hall. The Truck 1 officer stated he thought he heard two pops right before exiting the structure that came from the bingo hall. When Victim 1 got separated from his probationary firefighter, he immediately made a radio transmission indicating he was lost, running out of air, and needed someone to come get him on the red hose line. The IC advised Victim 1 to follow the red hose line out, but victim one stated he could not. Victim one had also pressed his emergency activation button on his handheld radio, which was never reset by him. The dispatch supervisor advised investigators that victim one's radio mic was keyed up and open for the duration of the fire. The fire department believed that the radio continued to activate due to thermal damage from the fire. This would interrupt communications on the fire ground. 
The IC had to do face-to-face -face communications to assign tasks at times. The IC, also known as the fire, was now intensifying and spreading across the roof line towards the Charlie side. After the evacuation call from the IC, the incident safety officer advised the IC to go to rescue mode and request a second alarm, which was done. The ISO stated he observed the fire through the roof from the center peak and back towards the Charlie side, which he relayed to the IC. The ISO also placed a flashlight in the open doorway on the Charlie side as a signal to help anyone inside the structure locate the door. He then made his way to the Alpha side where he was tasked by the IC to count firefighters as they exited the structure and handle EMS. The RIT crew, which was Engine 5, was also ordered by the IC to make entry into the structure to look for Victim 1. The, the Truck 1 acting lieutenant did speak with Victim number 2 on where he thought they had heard Victim number 1's pass device earlier, approximately 25 to 30 feet inside the bingo room. Victim number two advised firefighter one and firefighter two to follow the red hose line in to search for victim number one. They did not take a hose line with them. They had to crawl inside the bingo hall, which was dark with zero visibility and extremely hot. Firefighter one and firefighter two recalled hearing victim number one yelling for help. And a pass alarm was sounding towards the rear of the room. Firefighter one was leading the writ, followed by victim number two and then firefighter two. According to Firefighter 2, victim number 2 stopped the writ and took a thermal reading from his thermal imager before entering the bingo hall. Firefighter 1 came upon victim number 1 after following the red hose line in about 40 or 50 feet. While outside changing bottles, the Engine 2 officer noticed heavy fire conditions in the dance hall area while looking down the vestibule from outside. The Engine 2 crew heard the call for evacuation while they were exiting the structure. Engine 2 re-entered re, re with the yellow hose line into the vestibule to flow water into the dance hall area from the dance hall threshold. While advancing the hose line through the vestibule, the Engine 2 officer noticed extremely dark conditions within the bingo hall with no fire, but the dance hall was fully engulfed with fire. Firefighter 1, Firefighter 2, and Victim 2 which was Engine 5's crew doing RIP, grabbed victim number one, which is Engine 1's lieutenant, and began dragging him towards the vestibule. Firefighter 1 had the red hose line under one arm. Firefighter 1 and 2 and victim 2 were dragging victim 1 out when the room flashed over. The RIT continued to drag victim 1 until Firefighter 1 had no choice but to drop victim 1 and attempt to shield himself from the fire. After positioning his nozzle mount at the dance hall threshold, the Engine 2 officer briefly came off the yellow hose line to look into the bingo hall again. He now observed what appeared to be firefighters off to the right, enveloped in fire and dragging victim one. During the investigation, the Engine 2 firefighter reported to the investigators that while advancing the hose line past the bingo hall doorway, he heard the sound of a pass alarm in the bingo hall and assumed his officer heard it too. The Engine 2 officer attempted to radio IC without a response. The Engine 2 officer quickly went back to his nozzle mount on the yellow hose line and told him to reposition and flow water into the bingo hall to protect firefighters inside the bingo room. The Engine 2 officer believed that a flashover may have occurred while Engine 2 was flowing water for a second time into the downsall area. 
The truck one crew re-enter re the structure and observe engine two spraying water with the yellow hose line into the bingo hall. The engine two officer noticed what appeared to be a firefighter on the ground just inside the bingo hall, so he grabbed him and pushed him towards the vestibule. Truck one personnel quickly grabbed the firefighter and took him to the front door of the structure. No fire was visible in the bingo hall at this time. However, the dance hall, which was the Charlie side, was engulfed with fire. The automatic aid ladder company observed what appeared to be the roof collapsing into the dance hall once their ladder was in position. Engine 2 was assisted by truck 1 with removing two additional downed firefighters from the same area, a second firefighter, and then victim 2. The yellow hose line was being operated toward the dance hall and also as protection for those removing the downed firefighters from the bingo hall. The last firefighter to be found was and removed was victim number 1 by truck 1, engine 2, and engine 4 personnel. I think engine 4 came on the second alarm. Yes. He was discovered approximately 10 to 15 feet on the right side inside the bingo hall. He was removed to the exterior and found to be pulseless with ap apnea. Victim 2 later died at a regional burn center from his injuries. Firefighter 1 and Firefighter 2 were removed from the scene after suffering extensive burn injuries that required extensive rehab at a regional burn center. Any comments tough. on the incident, Paul? Tough to go through. Tough to go through that. I feel for uh, for the chief here because uh, to listen to it again from somebody else going through it, it's got a it's got a bug. Well, it, it never gets easier. I tell you, they were oh, no, they were close friends and such. But um, you know, our, our point has been from the beginning, and everybody in the organization still to this day say if we can share this story and help prevent this from happening, that's what that's why we do it. Right. Absolutely. That's why we do the podcast is hopefully some firefighter somewhere doing his workout or walking the dog is listening and maybe learn something that he can apply or she can apply to uh, save themselves that day. Absolutely. So a quick note about the fire behavior and the origin or cause of the fire. Uh, local and state fire arson investigators investigated the origin and cause of the fire. These investigators determined that the fire was accidental and originated in the kitchen area of the assembly hall before free burning above the ceiling level. Just hours prior to the incident, the assembly hall had been decorated for a party that was scheduled to happen the following day. Plastic tables, chairs, and decorations were also set up and organized throughout the bingo hall. Lots of plastic, solidified gasoline. Mm -hmm. Police units initially yep. arrived on scene and observed a three to four foot flame of smoke coming from the Alpha Bravo corner, thick black smoke emitting from an attic vent on the Delta side. Arriving fire departments, like we said, could not confirm that. Uh, they did notice smoke and fire emitting from the roof line on the Alpha Bravo corner, which was the kitchen area. Uh, investigators believe that once the fire got going in the kitchen area, it quickly spread upwards into the attic area. The attic area contained a large span of trusses over an open dance hall. Uh, engine 1 in the bingo hall and engine 2 in the dance hall. Both reported fire and or rollover conditions above their heads while operating interior prior to the victim 1 distress call. Uh, two PPV fans were placed at the alpha side to create better visibility within the large and relatively open structure. Occupational injuries and fatalities are often the result of one or more contributing factors or key events in a larger sequence of events that ultimately result in the injury or fatality. 
Investigators identified the following items as key contributing factors in this incident that led into the fatalities and injuries. It was a non-sprinklered commercial building, risk management principles not effectively used, it was a high-risk, low-frequency event, uh, fire ground strategy tactics and ventilation, there was a rapid fire progression, the fire burned and spread undetected above the ceiling, uh, the crew integrity, SCBA air management, fire ground communications, and a flashover. The cause of the death and injuries, according to the autopsy report, the medical examiner listed victim one's cause of death due, con due to conflagration injuries, and victim two's cause of death due to thermal injuries and smoke inhalation. Victim one had a carboxy hemoglobin level of 34%, and victim two had a level of 19%. Victim one and two sustained third-degree burns over their bodies. Now, usually this is when we get into the recommendations, but since we have the chief here, I think maybe he can just talk on what his internal report found for what they and what they did change in the fire department after this event. Well, you know, I just I want to make a few comments, you know, concerning um, the incident that night. Um, you know, the um, the outcome was not what we wanted, obviously, but. Um, our folks performed exceptionally well that night in many areas. Um, you know, engine one pulled up there as the report stated, uh, there was a small bit of fire showing from the, from the AB corner. Uh, the building was secured as such, but, uh, based on what they saw from the outside, again, the Lieutenant did a, did a complete 360, uh, made the determination to felt like it was a small amount of fire, hit the front door, go in, knock it out and basically go home. Like we've all done hundreds of times. And so again, you know, um, the, the situation they were in, I think we've all been in many times over our careers and I, I, I haven't, and I, I won't second guess, uh, if had I been in his shoes, I probably would have made the same decision to go in, knock out what appeared to be a small amount of fire in the kitchen. And like I said, uh, clean it up and go home. What was unique about this fire, uh, a couple of things, um, was when they got in there again, that they, they saw a fire, they got to it, uh, started knocking it down. And the battalion chief even reported, as you mentioned, that it looks like you're making good progress on the fire. So at that point, um, they felt like they, they had it knocked down, you know, again, do a little overhaul and, go home but again th this incident really uh reiterates how fast conditions can change and there were some things that happened that night um the lieutenant on that engine was a staunch advocate of thermal imaging cameras and i had uh folks tell me before when he was a driver before he would get the truck in the park break he's reaching for the thermal imager to remind the lieutenant don't forget this and for whatever reason that night he forgot the thermal imager and made the decision to go in, uh, went ahead and did. And while they were in there knocking the fire down, what they didn't realize was there were multiple layers of ceiling in there from, um, uh, you know, upgrades and such over the years. And the fire was running basically horizontally above their heads, uh, growing rapidly, which they were completely unaware of. As I mentioned, you know, they were in that, uh, that uh, bingo area with, with, very little heat at all, heavy smoke, saw the glow and such. Um, and so again, they, they were just going through, you know, uh, what, what, what they typically would do. 
uh, again, unbeknownst that the fire was traveling and growing at a large rate. Um, they were managing their air, and when uh, the lieutenant said, listen, it's time, we, we got to get out of here, he told the probationary firefighter to follow the hose line out. The probationary firefighter did as such, and he started down the hose. Um, there was a loop in the hose towards the end near the nozzle, and uh, the firefighter made it past the loop, and I uh, kept going. He stated later and felt he thought the lieutenant was right behind him the whole time. And they were headed out of the building. Uh, we have, we don't have the answer. We only have speculation that the lieutenant got to the loop, made the loop, and ended up back at the nozzle. And we're not sure how many times he tried to get past that loop, uh, but he ended up at the nozzle. And he reached a point where he knew he was in trouble. Um, he immediately started calling for assistance. He did not declare a mayday. Uh, but he made it very well known he needed assistance. And what's what's incredible about this portion of, of the story here is uh, if you listen to the audio recordings, uh, the lieutenant, when he was transmitting he needed assistance, was as calm as I am right now. And he kept saying, I'm running out of air. I need help. Send somebody to come get me. Um, eerily calm. And the battalion chief, you know, at this point, it's not on the radio, but he's motioned for the RIT team who was standing there ready to, uh, to go in. Uh, we, we took RIT training very serious. Uh, every year we put everybody through numerous drills um, doing this practice. So the RIT team was well-trained, standing right there, ready to go. And again, he motioned to them, did a quick face-to-face and deployed the RIT team, all the while trying to talk the lieutenant out over the radio to follow the hose line out. And um, as mentioned, you know, the, the truck company uh, uh, encountered the probationary firefighter coming out. Uh, engine two, again, had moved to the dance hall. Uh, the, the fire had, had come through the ceiling and it was rapidly growing on the backside of the building. Um, as engine five, the RIT team entered the building, they made a left, uh, the lieutenant on, on, the, on engine five had the thermal MG camera. And basically they followed that hose line right to uh, the lieutenant who was down and grabbed him and uh, was bringing him back out, dragging him back through the bingo hall. And I just want to tell you what's incredible again about this story. Uh, and, and again, so to this day and to my grave, I will tell you how proud I am of what these guys did. But as, as you mentioned, um, Doug, as, as the fire just basically came through the ceiling, it just engulfed them coming across the, the bingo hall, dragging the lieutenant. Uh, and we have on video where you can see the fire shooting out of the bingo hall during the flash show. We have it on video into the hallway leading into the, to the building. Um, the engine two lieutenant again pulled back and looked into the bingo hall. And the RIT team, all three of them had the lieutenant pulling him out, and they were completely engulfed in fire. And all the while, their protective gear is literally burning off of them. They never relented. They never gave up. And they kept dragging the lieutenant to the literally, they, they sustained serious burns themselves and fell to the ground, but they, they refused to let him go. And uh, they redirected the hose line off engine two back in there and started cooling the room. Uh, 
at that point, the injuries had, had happened. And, um, again, as you mentioned, they started, they started bringing them out uh, one at a time when the other crews arrived along with the assistance of the truck company. But um, I just wanted to make those points, you know, that um, they made the decision to go in uh, based on what they saw. Uh, again, I would have made the same decision when I was riding as a company officer. Uh, but there was some also some inc- incredible heroism that night getting him out of there. And, uh, you know, we had never encountered uh, in my time with the department and uh, knowing the history of the department, a situation like this. And just, you know, one of the things you've got to think about is worst case scenarios. Um, many things came together that night, the, the kind of the perfect storm uh, analogy, if you will, or the Swiss cheese model where the, all the holes line up. You know, if you've ever heard that theory as well, when something, when something like this happens. And um, unfortunately, that's how it came about that night. But um, again, things went, went south, so to speak, very, very quickly. And it's, 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 the condition started to deteriorate. Um, it, it went really, really fast. They, uh, they got them all out, um, except for the original lieutenant. And um, I arrived on scene. Uh, when I first got to the scene, I knew listening to the radio traffic coming across town. Uh, this was on the west side of town. I lived on the east side. Um, my gut told me this was, this was not good. Uh, sometimes there's just things you know. And I pulled up there and... Um, Walking up towards the front of the building, I immediately went to the battalion chief and uh, told him I was there and I walked up there and they had uh, all three of Engine 5's crew out in the parking lot and they were pulling the gear off of them and uh, I could just see the burn injuries all over them. Uh, Literally skin hanging off of their arms and such. And the probationary firefighter was on his knees and this was just, it was, I describe it as surreal. I just... The whole time I thought I was in a bad dream. I really did. And I'm going to wake up from this any minute. Uh, but unfortunately, it was all too real. But I'll never forget going up to the probationary firefighter who uh, he'd been with us about nine or ten months at the time. Uh, young kid, super nice guy. And I'll never forget when I ran up to him and made eye contact. He looked at me and he just told me, he said, Chief, I love you. Because this young man thought he was dying. He really did. And the other two, that we had our own our EMS folks there, paramedics, getting them out of the gear, getting them loaded into the ambulances uh, and treating them. And then while well, I'm relieved they're out, I'm horrified by their injuries, but then I'm realizing that we still have one in there. And the fire is consuming the building at this point. And I'll tell you, being in a situation I would never put anybody else in, wish them in, was... We had probably at this point at least six people in there still trying to get the original lieutenant out. And our assistant chief of operations at the time had, had got to the scene and him and I both are standing there watching this. And we know that roof is about to come down on them. And it's just, it's difficult to explain knowing we got to get them out of there. But if we pull them out, we're going to write air, the, the original lieutenant off. And if we don't get them out, we're about to make this situation even much, much worse. And I literally told him, looked at him, I said, we got to get him about 15 more seconds because we, we just got to order him out of there. Um, and by the grace of God, within about 10 seconds, all of them 
came rolling out of that front of that building with Eric. And literally just moments after that, the entire place was consumed in fire. And um, it was just, it was again, just unbelievable what was going on. And um, another thing too, that really sticks into my mind is when they got Eric out, they started working him and I immediately ran to the other ambulances that were on scene treating the first three that got out. And um, again, the look on the faces of our own folks treating their own brothers, I'll never forget. And then the looks on the faces of those that were injured. But I remember getting to the to the third ambulance at that point and in the back with, uh, with the second, with the lieutenant off of engine five. And I'll never forget because he was, he was so upset that they didn't get, get the first lieutenant all the way out. He, he was literally burned super bad. He was more concerned about the original lieutenant the, when they went in to get than he was his own injuries. And um, he kept screaming at the other ones, telling him, he's right there in the corner. He's right there. He's right there. And uh, I'll, I'll just never forget that because, again, he, um, he later succumbed to his injuries, but um, his priority was still to get to get the other one out. Um, but, again, this was just a – a situation that you train for, you prepare for, you hear about. Um, this was not something we had ever dealt with, especially with such a dramatic rescue with such heavy fire conditions. Again, we trained on rent teams uh, all the time. This was really the first uh RIT deployment, true actual deployment our department had ever experienced after, you know, the RIT concept came into effect years ago. But uh, they performed well, but again, the conditions were just, um, were, were, just were just bad, just um, what they had to go through. But um, I still think back and, you know, um, sure, there's some things we could have done differently. Um, there's always things to improve upon, but I still commend our folks and always will that they did an exceptional job in many ways. And they just got into a situation that was a rare situation, um, that deteriorated so rapidly that, um, you know, it, it had a bad outcome, but, um, there's a lot to learn from this incident, um, and such, um, I remember leaving the scene to go to the hospital and, and uh, I remember just telling the battalion chief, man, just get everybody away from it, burn it to the ground. I don't care. And that was my last words to him as, as I headed to the ER uh, to go check on our folks. But, you know, just some comments there concerning the actual operations and such. Um, the decision to go in, et cetera, uh, and, and what they truly encountered. A lot of people have read about this about this fire and we've talked about it many times all over the country we've traveled talking about this fire but um you know one of the things anytime i talk about it i always want to reiterate the heroism those guys performed that night when they they literally were sacrificed their own bodies and they refused to give up to to get their get their fellow firefighter out thank thanks chief i mean that's great uh to, to hear you talk about that and it give me, you know, shills down my back and, and, you know, I've gone to hospitals uh, to check on my firefighters after nothing serious like this. And, and I can only, I can't imagine 
how it felt for you. I, I want to say right from the start, they handled the rescue very well. I think from, from what we, we hear, like they kept control. They, they enacted rescue. I mean, okay. The writ didn't have a hose line, which was pointed out on the thing, but there was a hose line already in there. It was operating. It's all good, yeah. you know, uh, but they did the rescue and command grabbed the hold of that rescue and made it happen, which, which uh, can be tough. Uh, we just recorded last month, the Stricker street fire in, in Baltimore, the collapse and, and the con- trying to gain control. And we talked, about this in the recording is that how do you how do you control the entry of your firefighters when they're going in there to get their brothers and sisters right it's 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 so tough uh, tough situation for them well you know and another thing too and, and we get into some of the changes we made um and then i'll talk about this here in a minute but you know i realized that night too um firefighters are firefighters and you know when, when i mentioned earlier about we're going to have to get these get these guys out of here because I think we're about to have a much worse event. Um, you know, in hindsight, I, 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 even if we would have given the order to, to come out, they wouldn't have. Right. right. No way. I got a hold on him. He's coming with us. That, that's, that's exactly what was going to happen that night. And um, yeah. again, by the grace of God, we, we got out of there um, as bad as it was with it, with it not being worse, but. It could have been, but I'll touch on that a little bit more when we get into some of the changes we made. And, and you, the way you talk about this incident and, uh, you know, we practiced writ, we've, we've done all the drills, we had good training, all that kind of stuff, uh, you know, but yet it, the first time something like this has happened to me. And it sounds very much like I teach, I taught blue card on the side for a while too, to some of my departments. And, and when the, the Phoenix guys talk about the Brett Tarver mayday in the, in the grocery mm-hmm. store, same thing. It's like, we've never had this before. We, we didn't like, it just, we need to practice writ under much harder conditions to make it realistic right. because it's so hard to go and grab this guy in the burning building, in the smoke, in the heat, with our guys and you know they say they came up with that editorial after that said you know uh um you know writ is not is not rapid uh you know trying to get that that to happen but you know what one thing again to 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 comment about our folks at night and again training does pay off training training properly pays off and again we we took writ very serious as i mentioned earlier um and they were standing there with all the tools with the camera, again, they were they were ready to deploy. Um, they'd already all had done a walk around of the structure to see what they had. They were right there in the front of the building on the alpha side waiting. And again, when the uh, realization came they needed to deploy, they immediately hit the front door and were gone. And I, and I just want to talk about how important that was that night because, um, you know, early on, you're, you're the RIT team. You know, a lot of guys, that's the last place you want to be. <laughs> Yeah, and they're just kind of out there hanging out, no big deal. What's what's for supper, you know? As soon as we get through here, because we're not going to get to go in or do anything. And um, uh, of course, you know, when they arrived that night with with the fire conditions and how fast they developed, they knew they had a serious event. But I, I really want to stress just how important it was that night that they were standing there with their tools, completely geared up, ready to go, had done a walk around, and the moment the the order was given, they they were gone. They were, they were headed in. The, the similarities with the uh, Super Sofa fire uh, in how it started, because you can tell exactly from how Doug described it and you talk about it. We showed up 
little bit of fire coming out of the back corner or the side corner of the building. Somebody left something on in the kitchen. All good. We're going to go in there. We've got a hose line. We've got lots of apparatus. We've got lots of people. We're going to knock this thing down and, and it's going to be a, an easy call. And, and so many big catastrophic fires start that way. And, and like you said, they did exactly what we would all do, right? Yeah. Um, maybe missed a few steps here and there because of our, we're used to that, you know, control residential style, if you will, right. attack, uh, right. you know, grab an inch and three quarter, two inch and three quarters, which is awesome. They had two lines, which is, you know, and we're going to go in there. Um, and of course you've got this massive space that tricks you same as the auto parts store in Coos Bay, right, Doug? Uh, you got this massive place that's got fire up in the void spaces, and you can't see it. There's not a lot of smoke in the in the walking around space, and it fools you. Um, well, something 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 the chief mentioned that it it strikes me doing these podcasts is how often these events happen at a fire that we did this fire a hundred times, and ninety nine of them it all went perfectly fine, and we went back and had supper. And then one time, like the chief said, the, the holes in the Swiss cheese just align completely right and something goes bad and it goes really bad. And it, it's amazing how, how often, I mean, lots of these line of duty deaths aren't like a huge catastrophic major event. It's something that you go to lots of times in your career and nothing happens and you just go home. But yeah, yeah. one time it, it doesn't, right? And it, it, it makes you really, when you're still riding the truck, like I am, you guys aren't, but you got to treat every fire like this could be the one, right? You know, that's, that's a very good point, Doug. And I'll tell you, after we analyzed this fire and, and, and you know, looked at everything that happened, there, there was a lot of it, especially guys who have been on the apartment for a long time. You know, we literally just looked at each other and said, we're, we've been in that situation so many times and we came out and this time they didn't. And it, it was really a scary feeling to be honest, looking back, you know, and just going that, that, that could have been any one of us. Cause we did exact, we would have done exactly what he did. They did. And um, it was an eye opener just going, this was a, this, this was a fire we've, we've been to so many times and, well, like Paul said, I agree with him. I, I can't imagine what it was like for you dealing with this. I mean, I've never been, I think I was thinking, I think you might be the first person I've ever talked to about a fire that an LODD happened that was there. It, it's not super common in our neck of the woods, but uh, I couldn't imagine also what the crews felt the next time they went to a fire, knowing that this just happened and now they have to go do their job again with all this you in the know. back of their mind. When... This fire was the 100th out of like 99 went fine. This is number 100. Now we got to go to 101. And how's that one going to go? Right? It's, it's, no, 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 I, I couldn't imagine dealing with a line of duty death at a fire, but I also can't imagine having to go do your job after dealing with a line of duty death. It's got to be a pretty tough feeling with all that stuff in the back of your mind. It really was. And, and that's such a good point because, um, you know, the, the the next several days and weeks were extremely busy with so many things that we had to deal with at that moment. But 
I do remember um, one time in particular, the next day, you know, we have a, through our alerting system, we have a, a, a unique tone for a box alarm or a structure fire, you know, as opposed to a medical call or still alarm for an engine or something. And I remember there was a lot of folks over in the admin building, uh, which was attached to station one. Um, over there again, what can we do to help? We're talking about a lot of things and that uh, alarm dropped for, for, for a box alarm or a structure fire. And I remember just an eerie feeling. And, and, and those guys that were, pardon me, on duty, they just kind of froze for a second, looked at each other as they not quite as fast started heading that way towards the trucks. And um, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. It, it was it was um, it was different. It was, and, and for quite a while, to be honest. I bet. We're not like the private business that can just close for a week and gather our <laughs> thoughts and then open up again, right? I mean, fire department right. never shuts down. We just got to go keep going, right? Had to keep going. Yeah, no other options. Well, you want to get into some of the investigation yeah, the and changes or whatever? recommendations yeah. recommendations from that i got this texas start this texas uh fire marshal's report seems a little bit better on the on the recommendation well, on the, the chief house's internal one too i mean he was involved in it so yeah you want to you want to talk about all the, the changes yeah. or whatever you made to the yeah and i i'm sorry you cut out a little bit so again as i mentioned um you know, we worked with the NIOSH group, uh, worked with the state fire marshal's office um, with their investigations. We ended up doing our own internal investigation, kind of a parallel investigation. And, um, you know, NIOSH came out with the recommendations that the state fire marshal's office did too. And, uh, you know, that aligned uh, with what, what we felt as well. But, you know, we looked at things, changes need to be made. We actually had we, we felt there were more need to be made than just what they recommended. And we went, you know, we looked at every one of them and um, as quickly as we could try to, um, to implement the changes. What we did very immediately afterwards, um, you know, we, we had a question too, you know, we would critique every working fire and, you know, we, we had a quick conversation while this was under investigation, you know, how are we going to treat it? And, um, we made the decision to go ahead and critique it. We brought the crews in as soon as they came back and we talked about what we knew. People wanted information without getting too deep into the details, but we just, we tried to treat it like we did others. And um, right after we did that, we, we formed a internal committee, uh, including ranks from uh, folks from every rank up through assistant chief. Uh, I was not, I chose not to be on the committee, uh, but they did a very in-depth look across all of our operating procedures and policies, et cetera, looked at what we knew from the fire and uh, basically came up with the list of, of recommendations, um, you know, that, that, again, we put alongside the others. Um, one of the, the biggest ones that was implemented was, uh, you know, as it was mentioned, we were running three on, on every fire vehicle as minimum staffing. And, uh, three? Did you say three? Three, yes. And um, immediately afterwards, in fact, in June of 2013, we I had already began discussions with the with the city manager and uh, 
the Bryan City Council passed a resolution uh, to add enough firefighters over the next 10 years to um, put four on every truck. Uh, our city treated us very, very well. They embraced that. And uh, they started adding firefighters every budget year. Um, I was happy to report we had all the vehicles staffed with four before five years had passed. We got that implemented. Uh, another thing, too, that, that was really uh, made apparent that night was the necessity of a chief's aid or incident command tech. There's a couple of different names for them now. I know uh, just how critical that role is. One person cannot manage an event like that uh, and keep track of all the resources. And of course, you know, uh, we, we got help to the battalion chief on duty uh, as more staff folks showed up, but the critical moments happened long before we got there. And uh, part of the increase in staffing included a, chief's aide um, that rides with the battalion chief all the time, every day. And uh, that made a huge impact, I felt like, uh, in the managing of the, of the scene, especially as far as safety is concerned. Uh, I have to ask you the question there, chief. It, it's you, you bring the chief's aide up and the increased staffing on the, on the, uh, on the apparatus. And we've done about, we're, we're starting to become a little bit knowledgeable about LODDs. We're on episode 27 here, and we've seen this frequently, where after a line of duty death, we are able to get increased engine staffing or apparatus staffing, and the chief's aid. It, it keeps coming up. Um, was I don't, and maybe you can't answer, and that's fine. You know, uh, it often seems like a significant event has to happen in order to convince. It does. The committees that, hey, we, you know, because NFPA 1710 says four guys on an engine in a normal mm -hmm. area and five, we just recover. We, we just, we didn't even, I didn't even know this for Baltimore in a heavy urban area, what, th over 3,000 per square mile or something. It says five in an engine or six, mm -hmm. which is, you know, yeah. So I know, I know Charleston was the same thing. They, they couldn't right. get it. They couldn't right. get more. All these places couldn't get more and couldn't get fits. Uh, you're able to after this, right? Which is sad. We were, but you know, again, you're, you're, you're right, uh, Paul, that's, that unfortunately, you know, it takes an event like that sometimes to really make the public understand just the dangers involved in this job. And, um, how do we, how do we fix that? Well, you know, I, 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 I don't know the answer. You know, we can better educate our elected officials. We can better educate our public. But, you know, the reality is the public calls 911, their car is on fire. And if two guys show up on a booster truck and put it out, they're as happy they're as happy. they can be. Yeah. You know, they, yeah. they thank them and say thank you and, you know, on about their way. Um, but, again, you know, it, it was one of the NOSH recommendations and uh, the city embraced it and uh, – we, we, we uh, applied for and received two safer grants during this period, which helped speed the process along. Uh, but we got, we got our staffing up. Um, it was a total of 33 positions we added over five years. And so um, still to this day, it's four on every truck, engine and ladder. And um, it's, it makes such a big difference. You know, I would still follow up even up to the time of my retirement, you know, tell me about the effects. And this guy would just say, you know, I can't believe we ever made it without it. And uh, it's, it's just, 
increases efficiency so much as well as the safety. Con- congratulations to you, Chief. I've been in those shoes or a deputy uh, and, and how hard that is to, to, to make that happen. So, so, you know, you should be proud of yourself that you were able to do that. Unfortunately, it was at a very high expense to make it happen, but you were able to follow through through all that, stay on, make changes. Uh, it, it, it's tough. And, and yeah, I don't know how we do it. I mean, I, I always preach and I've gotten in trouble for preaching this a couple of times is many of our firefighters themselves don't see our service as a risk management tool for the community and property and stuff enough. It, it, we get so used to the, you know, how room and contents or house fire or car fire or MVC. We don't think of the big bad one, which is really why we're there. Uh, and we're understaffed for the big bad, bad one, of course, um, yes. you know, unless, unless something's happened. Well, and again, I, I appreciate your, your words, Paul, but I'm going to tell you, it, uh, it, it was a huge team effort from uh, our command <laughs> right. staff, our department, our city leaders, our community members, everybody supported it. And again, we were able to get that accomplished. And um, again, that's not how you want to do it. But unfortunately, sometimes um, that, that's, that's how it happens. Excellent. Uh, excellent. One of the things, too, we did was um, we realized, too, and here's the point I want to make is you know, uh, on, when, when this fire occurred on, on a typical box alarm, um, we sent three engines, a truck, an ambulance, uh, the EMS supervisor or instant safety officers was, was their role, and, um, of course, the battalion chief. And what this scene really told us that night was, you know, had there not been any issues, like typically there are not, uh, this was, we felt like, an adequate number of people on the fire ground to handle most tasks. But how fast this thing unfolded, how fast it um, it came into a to be a crisis mode, we, we realized there, there was not near enough staffing on that scene. And uh, we ended up, again, along with the four-person staffing, we actually added an additional fourth engine uh, to a um, to a standard box alarm. And we even later came up with what we, you know, a lot of cities do is a heavy box where on a commercial structure, five engines, two ladders, uh, two ambulances, um, uh, any other resources. And, uh, because the reality of it is when you get there uh, and folks and some firefighters will complain getting up at three in the morning to be fourth due that, you know, why are we coming across town? Well, this situation here uh, really demonstrated to us that if you do have a May Day event, something goes south, you can't have too many people. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the big changes we made to make sure that uh, we always wanted to have a team waiting there at the curb, uh, whether for an additional hose line or to support the RIT team uh, with hose protection, et cetera, that um, they were there available. Uh, again, you know, having, having bench players uh, is how, you know, I've, I've heard people right. talk about it. We, we say it all the time that it's a lot easier to say, hey, thanks for coming. We'll use you next time. We didn't need you this time, as opposed to hurry up and get here faster because we didn't call you fast enough, Right. Right, exactly. And again, this incident that made it uh, evident just how important it is to have enough people coming on the first alarm. And, and again, I've been in the fire service uh, now for almost 40 years. And, you know, there, there's always been arguments about, well, you know, that's too many vehicles running across town, you know, code three and the dangers of, of a potential accident and such. And while there's some, there, you know, there's some relevance to that argument, um, there's, 
the scene that night showed us, you know, if you're driving properly and, you know, following policies, um, that shouldn't be a problem. Uh, right. But you, you've got to have the folks there ready to go in the event something like this happens. Yeah, because they're coming from further away too, so it takes longer, right? Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. You know, obviously, the, yeah. the you know the deeper you get into the alarms or, or more engine companies, the further their travel time. Um, Is so that it, automatic with your mutual aid? partners so i get a box alarm over here and a big a heavy box it automatically dispatch knows who's the next and the next and the next to back that up yes uh as doug mentioned you know you brian college station really if you don't know where the city limits is yeah you, you're one town to the next and uh both departments are dispatched as if they're one and so awesome. if, it, if it's a fire on the border then the, the closest engines and you may have two engines from one city and a bat chief from the other, uh, along with uh, one of the other's ladder. It doesn't matter. It's it's the closest units go, and that's how it was uh, was in place at it's that. It's a time. bit of a soapbox that I have that Doug and I go on about once in a while. It's automatic aid and the whole, you know, it doesn't matter where you come from. You old the Bernicini thing. Mrs. Smith doesn't care whose name's on the door. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Well, you know, and we we've even taken it a step further. We have. Uh, in our county, we have both city departments and we have four uh, rural vo- volunteer fire departments. And I'll tell you, there, there's a lot of um, a lot of value in having good relationships with your neighboring departments, regardless of their uh, career or volunteer. And we established those relationships and we even had the volunteer departments on the run cards if it got deep enough perfect, uh, where we would pull them in and they would come in if we had multiple events going on. They would come in and backfill our stations. Again, we set some staffing requirements of who, who to send sure. uh, just to ensure the safety of everyone. And uh, all four departments always wanted to play. And uh, that's awesome. That's just the, my advice is you've got to have the relationships with those neighboring departments when these events or just not even something to this magnitude, just uh, multiple right. calls at once. Yeah. It's, what it's what I don't like, I don't like the incident commander to have to think, oh, who should I call next? Exactly. Uh, you know, I want to take that decision out of that. He's got enough to worry. He or she has enough to worry about. Who? Wh- right. Where's the next ladder coming from? You shouldn't have to worry about that. You should know it's there. Uh, as an officer, you should know what resources are around you. But you know, it, that should be done done ahead of time, which which is good, especially when it goes across jurisdictional boundaries, which unfortunately is not the case in much of, especially Canada. Uh, and I guess some in the States too, but anyway, right. we're probably distracting from the, your, your changes that you've made. No, no, no. It's, it's, but again, it's, it's those factors, you know, had had an impact on that night and, um, it's important to discuss that. Um, you know, another thing too, that we did, uh, we implemented a mayday mode operation, if you will. We, we had a rescue mode and it's mentioned in there that if, um, uh, we, we get to a scene and there's someone trapped, uh, typically a civilian, you know, you get a report that somebody is confirmed in a working fire, then we, we would we would go into rescue mode, which caused some operational changes and immediately brought a second alarm in and such, and that was done. But what we realized at this event was, again, you got to plan for maydays. you got to have a plan. You just, you've got to have it, everybody trained on that plan. And we developed this mode of operations that if, um, uh, if someone does announce a mayday that again, everybody's already aware of what changes are going to be made, how to deal with that mayday. Um, because we really hadn't dealt with one prior to this. 
And uh, again, we just tried to analyze every everything out of this event and um, fine tune our operations, if you will. And that was one of them. Um, some other things we, we looked at and did, and I'm not going to go through all of them, but some of the some of the bigger ones. Um, what we didn't realize was, you know, we started talking about the thermal imaging camera use and we started, we, we didn't have, we didn't mandate in an SOP that you must carry one. You know, um, they always did. The tool's right there in front of the officer. And again, the night this happened, this particular officer would always take one, uh, but for whatever reason, and we'll never know, he didn't. But, you know, we mandated the use. And uh, even if the point, if you have a malfunction with one or you forget it on the truck, you pull back out of the operation until you get that that thermal imager because, you know, it, it could have had a big effect on this fire that night. And uh, you, you need that information and the management thinks it's important. So you're saying, you know, you, you need this is critical that uh, that you yes. have that information. I like it. That's 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 cool. I know we ended up my last department we we ended up with two. We bought a little tick for the officer and had the big one for the firefighters in the, in mm -hmm. the back. We just ended up like why not, right? Right. Right. So do you do you have uh, a tick on every truck then there? I'm sorry, what's that? You, you have a tick on every truck? Every truck. Every truck, yeah. And, and we'll it was the same the same that day too. He just forgot it. He just forgot it. But we had them on every vehicle. And we even carried uh, two on the battalion chief's vehicle in the event one malfunctioned. Sure. Uh, we had a spare uh, that somebody could grab if that, or for that, whatever reason. That goes along, like you said, about the Swiss cheese holes all lining up, right? That's mm -hmm. just one thing that led, that added to this happening. It's like in the Baltimore mom we just did, they forgot their radios on the truck. Right? Yep. They probably right. bring the radio every time, but that one they forgot. Right. This guy brings the tick for a pot on the stove probably where he never even uses it. And then the one time he needs it is the one time he forgot it. He forgot it. That's correct. You know, another, another unique thing, if you will, that, that, that we discovered, um, you know, back then uh, our hose loads on our, our, on our engine companies, we had uh, a couple of 150 foot cross lays and we had uh, two 200 uh, rear skid loads of, of inch and three quarter and the um, the front two, one was red, one was yellow, and the rear one was red, one was yellow. And a couple of things we noted that night, um, and it worked out in our favor, but, you know, you hear, hear them talking about lost on the red hose line. And um, the second line that went in was the, the yellow one off the rear. And what we realized was how critical that was, because if you picture any structure fire with multiple hose lines going in, if they're all the same color, you don't know which one is which. And uh, we did that for safety reasons, but also, too, if you ever needed to dial up or dial down the pressure on one, you could radio out, and they knew. Uh, and what we ended up doing, um, even after this fire, we ended up making all four hose lines different colors. Different colors, because you could have had the accident. If two reds were out, you wouldn't have known, right? Exactly. Yeah, oh, I like that. And the other thing, too, we did was we, we realized, too, that we, we replaced 150-foot cross lays with 200-foot, all in the same length. Good. Because if you're in a critical situation 200 feet in or close to it and you need to get to them and your other one's 150, that's going to cause you some problems. 
Yeah, so, yeah, I never like the a lot of places will do like a 150 and a 200 or, or mm -hmm. whatever. But you know what? That bed, NFPA says it should hold 200 feet. There's got to be a reason. Somebody smarter than me yeah. decided that. Well, we made them all uh, the same length and then, of course, do all the different colors. But, again, that, that just kind of happened. I mean, we had planned for that a little bit, but it showed how critical it was. What about taking a two-and-a-half in? What, what happened there? Because, obviously, it was too small at the start. They didn't think of it. But you have a two-and-a-half pre-connect, I'm sure, in Texas. You probably do. At that time, we did not. Oh, okay. After after we went to the four-person four staffing, we, we put a uh, – Two and a half right. on there, and guess what? It was a different color than the rest of them. Right, right, another color. The supplier loved you. I want purple. <laughs> yeah, but uh, but no, no, that that's good. No, but I've always been a big fan of a two and a half inch pre-connect with a nozzle or a mini monitor or something on it. Actually, I'm crazy. I think in my last trucks I ordered, I had two two and a half pre-connects. Uh, one was for the blitz and one was for the nozzle. And then the the cross lays, but that's just me. I'm kind of apparatus geek, so. No, I understand. And, and during that time of the fire, we did have a, we had a 200 foot uh, blitz fire uh, off the back that was, um, uh, you know, with three inch hose that we we could immediately right. deploy. Right. Uh, and that was kind of our two and a half, if you will, at the time. But obviously, that wasn't wasn't an interior. But because the blitz is on it, your firefighters were thinking outside, outside, outside. Probably outside. it probably would have slid all over that floor. Uh, right. Anyway, if you had deployed it. Right. Exactly. Um, you know, I mentioned earlier another change we made. Um, I think uh, one of the things that saved uh, the two firefighters who were burned critically was the quality of gear. We were buying very high quality gear at the time. Um, I can't overstate how important that is. This is not where you want low bid. And um, after the fire, after um, after they both got out of the burn center and was able to come home, uh, our gear manufacturer, we brought them in and um, we brought them in and they both volunteered and they basically stripped down to their underwear and we analyzed where they were burned and looked at the coat and to see just how the gear performed. And um, some people will still argue with me today, but the old adage, you know, if you, if you get too much protection, you can get too deep into something and you can get into trouble. And I don't, there, 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 there's, there's some, value to that argument however what this incident showed us was you may get into a situation you can't get out of or you may get into a situation where the folks come to get you are not going to leave until they get you out and by looking at how the gear performed we ended up adding another layer of thermal protection over the shoulders and along the back um, if this were to happen again hopefully it would lessen the burns, what these right two where the where the pressure points were from the BA and stuff went through. Now again, I still to this day believe in training and being smart. Right, and if you, if you should you never wrap, need it. If you wrap yourself up so tight you can't feel or you don't pay attention to your surroundings, you can get in trouble. But you know, we felt like we've got to have these guys with the protection because if they get caught in a flashover, if they get caught in a situation where. They've got to go perform another rescue. And you know whether you radio to get them out or not, they're probably not going to come out. At that point, you want them as protected as they can be. 
right. want them locked uh, up tight. Sort of like sort of like building code, right? You're building it into the structure of uh, exactly. the safety. Yeah, yeah. And that's and tough to do to make gear thicker in Texas because the guys then complain about the heat, right? It is. It is. Yeah. Uh, but again, our, our whole approach to this after the fire was to say, let's let's look at this knowing what happened. If we encounter this exact situation again, how can we be better prepared? Yeah. That's yeah. the basis of a lot of our decisions. Another thing, too, we did was um, we um, – we had we were running thirty minute high pressure cylinders uh, in all the packs, and, and you uh, went up. We replaced the entire every bottle in the organization. We went to forty five minute cylinders. Okay, uh, yeah. With our our RIT, RIT bottles, um, right? With yep. the new with the new air pack standard that went in, you know, the alarming at thirty three. Mm-hmm. It's just it's not enough air, and um, right. we made that decision to do that, and, and also too. And again, as far as protective uh, gear, the second lieutenant on engine five, um, what got him, the other two were burned. He was burned bad, but the difference, what cost him his life was his mass separated right at the at the bridge from the heat. And he, he uh, had some inhalation burns. And, you know, if you look at the gear, uh, of the entire ensemble, what's the weakest point, you know, as far as heat related, and it's the mask. And was it one it, of the newer, the newer masks with the higher heat it rating? Was not. It was not. Ah. But we replaced every mask in the department with the high high temp mask. Yeah, I I was involved. I was I was a deputy chief at the time, and of a of a, a 20, uh, 2013, Yeah, uh, I was in a little rural. Uh, fire district, uh, you know, 150 volunteers, uh, five stations, very low population. And one of the big cities, uh, Edmonton, big city nearby, had purposely replaced all their face pieces because once the new standard came out, you know, uh, the, the uh, firefighters were successfully able to lobby and the fire department was able to get the funding to say, we need the best, the safest that we can buy. And if this is safer, we need it. And they bought it. So I went to the, our chief and the council and said, like, we need it too. And I was able to pull it off. But a lot of departments were not able to pull it off or didn't even know that that had happened. It was based on another fire. We should do that one where they studied the face pieces and found that they uh, degraded rapidly. And that's when they upped the standard in 2009, I think. I want to say 2009, 2012, somewhere in 2009, 2010, where they changed the standard. So, so yeah, so the high temp, that's... that's. uh, But, you know, even after doing that, I encountered folks that I literally had arguments with telling me that was wrong to do because again, they're going to, this is just going to make them get in deeper and get in more trouble. And again, I, I kind of understood that prior to this fire, but it, it changed my, it changed my perspective. Sure. The, but the Swiss cheese lined up, no tick residential sort of tactics, if you will, to attack the ceiling tiles. They, you know, the, the people you, that were interviewed even said, you know, they noticed fire above them. They said that on the radio, you know, in mm-hmm. the, in, but it didn't, it didn't ring a flag. Something didn't, didn't tick there to think, uh Oh, same as Charleston. Uh, there's fire up there. Oh, we better spray water. Oh, hang on a minute. Right. But that's a flag that got missed. And like you say, you're going to wrap the people up, but, and, and yeah, you can't get in there too deep, but that's training. That's just like, that's, training. The, that's like the truck coming across the city is a higher risk because it could have an accident. Yes. 
hopefully the drivers are trained. They stop before they go through the intersection. All this kind of good stuff. They got Battenberg stripe on the side, right, Doug? So that people see them. And, you know, that that's, that's another, we can't guess that. But by definitely having that better mask, if they do get into that bad situation, it might save their life. Uh, and that's exactly the, the perspective we took. And again, you know, um, there's opinions all over the fire service about everything, but uh, it was never kind noticed. Of, uh, it was kind of amazing to, to, to get a little bit of the pushback from some folks. And um, but again, I, I wouldn't have argued with them as much prior to this fire. But again, after going through this, like I said earlier, it, it really changed changed our perspective on the PPE and uh, they got to be smart. You got to train them. They got to make good decisions. You got to be cognizant of their environment they're in, but if they get into something and they can't get out, you want them protected. And that was just, that was just kind of our approach on all of that. But uh, the last, last little thing I want to mention too, that we did um, that um, we realized from this fire was, and a lot of departments had already have already done this and do this was we, we went back and, uh, labeled our probationary firefighters a lot better, uh, helmet color and such markings. Um, because all the guys reported inside the building, you know, with everything going on, they, they run into somebody, you know, they weren't sure for certain who they were talking to. You know, we all know that, but when they encounter a probationary firefighter, you have to make some assumptions that, you know, they, they may need a little extra help. And uh, we made a decision to change the markings on their helmets, you know, until they, they reach their probationary period where if you're in a situation like this and you see a probationary firefighter, you probably want to, instead of telling them to do something, you may want to go with them. You know what I'm saying? Or, or just be aware of, of their inexperience, per, perhaps, in a situation like that and just make them more readily identifiable. Yeah, one department, Doug and I were both on, uh, I think I was part of the decision, but we we had uh, orange helmets for the probies and uh, yep. uh, that the, they didn't care for it. But you know what? I And I went, remember that MVC dug out on the highway and I pull up to this massive snowstorm vehicle on its side, people trapped, all this kind of bad stuff. And I get out of the command seat or whatever. And all I see is orange, like six orange helmets. And I go, oh my God, what am I going to do? <laughs> and I went to either Doug or your best friend oh, and, and said, uh, Kyle, he said, I said, you, you, you know, you've done this before, right? We got to take the roof off. We're going to flop it down. You know, the classic van on its side, flop the roof down. And, oh, yeah, yeah, we've done it. All good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was worried. Do, do you use uh, SCB? Did they use in, Brian, they call the SCBA, like, identifiers or the magnets on the helmets with the number they of the, the truck? Well, or? They had the front shields. That, that did Just it, the front shield. Well, the air packs we had the we had the add-on little things that showed the engine company or whatever. those for everywhere because yeah. that way you can see you know truck one or engine two and if those are both on the same hose line I go something's not right here yeah yeah and, and like a lot of departments you know uh, the lieutenant the company officer different color helmet the gears a different right. color trim even the the uh, identifying tags on the air packs coordinated with that color so you oh. immediately immediately pick out an officer. Right. or something if, if you know who you're talking to but the other thing too and just kind of um, hitting the high points here on all the changes we went back and and um, looked at all the training and we went back through some specialty training in different areas related to what had happened as such risk management um, you know risk versus uh, 
benefit training for everybody. Um, just more rent training. Um, just we went back and hit some things too from some of the recommendations made just to ensure that, that, that we, our folks knew what they were doing, you know, just to reiterate some of that stuff that came about. But, um, you know, I was very proud of our folks. And of course still am today that, you know, as an organization, and one of the things I learned from um, talking with the NIOSH investigators, which I found kind of peculiar, to be honest, was when this happened, our approach was, you know, we've got to make sure this never happens again. And that, that was from everybody in the organization. And in talking with the NIOSH investigators, um, again, to be open and honest, they were kind of rude to us at first or standoffish, maybe not rude, but just very short. And, and finally, I told one of them, I said, listen, we're going to give you whatever you want. What do you want from us? We're going to provide it. And he just kind of looked at me kind of funny. And he stopped and he apologized. He said, we don't normally get treated this way. Mm. A lot of people want to ignore us. And um, we embraced it. We really yeah. did. And uh, we wanted to know what happened. We wanted to know what we needed to do to prevent it from happening. And uh, we worked hand in hand with them on that report. In fact, they, they allowed us to provide specific narratives or changes into what they, they found to make sure it matched up with what exactly happened. And, um, we want to make sure this, like I said, it never, ever happens again. And we just spent our message. And, you know, the two that, that got burned uh, have been around talking. One of them has been all over the country. One's been to FDIC. We've, we've traveled around to small departments, big departments, and we just have a presentation walking through this fire. And we have some pictures of the guys in the burn center, which always catches people's attention. But, um, you know, our, our mission has always been, to make sure this never happens again. And if we can share that with anybody, and that's why I feel honored and privileged to be here talking to you this evening, because, um, you know, it is tough to talk about, but the most, the, the, the most good you can bring out of a bad event should be, should be the, be the goal. Um, and if we can prevent this from happening somewhere else, then we're going to make the best of a bad event. Yeah. Um, no, Chief, did the, exactly. uh, did the injured guys return to the, to the fire department? One of them, the probationary firefighter on the uh, one-year anniversary of the fire returned to full duty. The other one, um, he his hands received burns. Both of these young men had over 30 surgeries, um, just, not, just constant one after another going back. And um, the other one had... Uh, burns to his hands and burned through his gloves to a point uh, his hands couldn't function to, to go back on the line. Uh, but our city supported my decision. We established him a position in the training division. And uh, we said, you're going to have a job as long as you work here. And uh, that's what he does today. He's eight to five in the training division. And uh, even with, with my time thereafter, the years after this fire, while I was still there, I would, I would send him out to other departments all over the state uh, to go tell his story, to talk about what happened that night. And, yeah, uh, yeah. He he came through and developed a lot of different things on um, uh, how to how to survive in a flashover. Talked about his experiences, you know, a better way to maybe prepare yourself uh, when you realize it's about to happen, et cetera. And so, um, again, just. 
we, we just try to take every angle to, to get the information out, to share our story and uh, help anybody who would listen. Yeah. I mean, that, that's why we do the podcast, right? I was frustrated as a, as a training guy and as a chief officer in trying to review reports like this with the, uh, with the people on a training night or, or at some point in time. And a lot of people, you know, the eyes would glaze over after the first 15 minutes or so. And so that's why Doug and I and, and, and Dirk and Zach said, well, let's do a podcast and maybe someone will listen to it. We're small. We only have, you know, I don't know, 40, 50 listeners. It's growing, but uh, any way we can get the word out, if it helps somebody, great. That's, that's again, that, that's the point. We can't change what happened, but you can't have an impact on the future, hopefully. Well, and so many yeah. firefighters have the, like, well, especially being in Canada, right? Americans are all cowboys. Like that, it happens there. It's not a it's not a Canadian thing. It it only happens in the states, but it can happen. I mean, literally, can happen anywhere. Fire there has been right. firefighter deaths yeah. in Canada too. And this fire easily could have happened in my city or Pulse City or wherever, right? And so many firefighters, they just they just have the like, well, it won't happen here. It won't happen to me. Blah blah. blah. And then eventually it does. And they're playing catch up and whatever. And something I've been thinking about listening to you talk, Chief, is none of us ever want to have to deal with a line of duty death. That's probably the worst day a firefighter can ever imagine, ever go through. But it sounds like you and your department kind of made the most of it. And and you didn't just say, we don't want this to happen again. You You made true changes to try to do everything you could to make it never happen again. And that that's a way to let the legacy of the fallen brothers live is that's correct. They might save somebody else's life through a change that happened because of this fire. Right. And that's exactly right. That's exactly right. True testament to even open yourself up to the investigation. It takes a lot to say, like, tell us where we were wrong and then, and then make changes and make it better. Right. Absolutely. And you know, it's, I, Again, this is just something I can just promise you, you never, ever want to go through. Um, and the, the the pain that we went through and, you know, prior, prior to this event, you know, we, we did always get the emails and see the news flashes of a line, a line of duty death across the country. And you'd, you'd stop and go, man, that's horrible and, and move on. And, you know, even to this day still, when we see, uh, you know, through the different uh, emails and stuff that come to the announcer's line of duty deaths, it, it, it changes you. And every time I see one, I still just, you just stop and think. And um, I just don't want somebody to have to deal with that. I don't, none of us do. And uh, it's, it, it just changes you. I can promise you. And that's, that's what we want to do. We, we, we want to do our part to, to, to help prevent this in any way possible we can. Well, we really appreciate you coming on here, chief. And it's, it's a, Hearing a different side of it from someone that was intimately involved is a lot different than us just reading a report and talking about it. So we really appreciate you being here. So thank you for that. Well, it is my pleasure. Again, I, I want to thank both of you for what you're doing. Uh, make every impact you can. And, uh, you know, even if uh, whether you have one person listening or a thousand, if, if it makes an impact, then it's worthwhile, in my opinion. Awesome. Well, we want to thank everybody for listening and hopefully we can all learn from this. And uh, so, yeah, thanks for listening to the emergency traffic podcast. Uh, we hope you can follow us on 
social media, give us some likes or whatever on whatever platform you're listening on. Some feedback would be great, and uh, we'll see you at the next one. Stay safe out there, everyone. Thank you, Chief. My pleasure. Thank you.